Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. Hey everyone, and we're back. Um, we were just having a preamble about laughing our way through some of the bad stuff <laughs> with the church and how you kind of, yeah. you know, we know we have good people and we know that there are good communities and things like that, but how it's sort of like a, a coping mechanism of how we kind of laugh through certain things because, you know, it is, it it is weird. Like I said to Krista, it's like, <laughs> I I worshipped and like gave my life over to a god that was willing to send me to hell. Ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, well, it's not funny, but we're definitely laughing. Ha ha ha. It's sort of like <laughs> Yeah. But honestly, there are some great Instagram videos or TikTok videos that I've come across of like flashbacks of um we called them human videos. Did you do these when you were in church? Like you would almost have like a movie acting out to uh, a song. And there usually it was like, you know, there was evil and there was angels and Jesus would die in the cross at some point in the song and um, good would triumph evil. And lo and behold, the, the crowd would clap. And it was always like very cheesy interpretations and dancing did you guys do these things mean like actual music videos like carmen music videos or do you mean like like stuff acted out where somebody played no acted out yeah like you're on the stage like at the church and a song comes on like people are acting they have different roles and i always got play um positioned as an angel and i think it was kind of racist because i was blonde and they always put darker people as the demons and oh looking back I'm like wow this is so awful <laughs> and here we are laughing at awful things again but when you watch the videos of like that people have brought back up from like the 80s or the 90s of people doing these things like they're so cringeworthy but like I can't help but love watching them and laughing so hard <laughs> Um, and that is just there's already too many layers there to like <laughs> in one episode yeah oh it's so true it was like and then always like there was all like in our well I don't want to say too much because depending on listeners but there were always certain people that got picked to play like the tormented person <laughs> never like the worship leader it was almost the people who didn't come to church as often or like and they were always yeah was like you know either a demon or tormented by satan or you know yeah they're uh, like casting them based on their actual roles in life (laughs) hoping that they like use this opportunity to come back to the lord (laughs) they're like maybe they'll learn as they're doing the human video that jesus is calling them (laughs) it's like do you ever remember when people would pray like you pray out loud but people would mm-hmm. pray like they're not actually praying to god they're praying so that people who are listening like oh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know change their ways they're like lord and we know some people struggle with having too many boyfriends and that yeah. really this isn't godly and probably lord you know that they should be coming back to you and dumping their boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> all right 
you're you're talking about Jenny. We know you're talking. About- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People are like opening one eye at a time, looking around, be like, I think we're all talking about Jenny. <laughs> yeah. oh. and then if you made eye contact with one of your friends in the circle while that prayer was going on then you'd be trying not to laugh because you'd both make eye contact and you'd both know that you're talking yeah. about jenny, about jenny. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh so true yeah, good times so true. good times <laughs> uh, actually intended today to talk about the hill something i know we're a bit late because it came out quite a while ago but that's just how we're rolling these days is a bit yeah times um and we had both watched it the full documents mm-hmm. the fx one i think it's on hulu and we both watched it i think but then um we sort of i think had to go back because it already has been too long but um yeah i don't know krista because you were actually in a mega church oh yeah a large church what were your sort of first impressions and how did you feel like how did it hit hit you Hey, everyone. So we're just jumping back in here. We had a few technical difficulties from last time and we had to sort of peace out. That was unfortunate because we were really on a roll and we were kind of phoning each other afterwards and just like, oh, what about this? And what about this? And now our brains are like fried as we already spoke everything out. <laughs> um, but I I had sort of flipped it to Krista at the beginning just because of her experience in mega churches and just had asked her to draw in some parallels that she felt she saw between her own experience in a megachurch and when watching the Hillsong documentary. So Krista, I don't know if you want to leap off from that or if that's too broad. (laughs) Yeah, there was definitely a lot of parallels. And um, what I thought was maybe the most uh, like dramatic for me was just how similar my church experience was to Mm. like the Hillsong format and the model, like the church model was almost like identical. So just kind of the idea of like the celebrity pastor and um, he's almost like untouchable, you know, people can't access him unless you're really cool and you're on the inner circle and then everybody else is always working really hard to serve that celebrity pastor and they're being exploited by you know, volunteering countless amount of hours or working for mostly nothing um, while this leader is definitely getting paid very well. And like the whole idea that the whole ministry runs on the back of this person, like it almost becomes that you're not following Jesus anymore. You're following this celebrity pastor and they're your, your leader and they can get away with so many toxic and abusive uh, behaviors just because of the momentum that's created behind them. Like the the mm-hmm. church, that model of church doesn't function without them. And so all of the people around them continue condoning poor behavior simply because if they were to do something else, the thing could implode and it becomes really dangerous. And there's always these, um, I don't know, like conversations. I remember having conversations where in my church experience, there was a really toxic leader, but his ministry was doing well. And so people would show up and, you know, there are hundreds of people going to like a, a midweek service. And when I would complain about it or try to vent to a friend about it, so like a friend that I really respected and confided in, their their reply was something along the lines of, well, but God is obviously blessing them and blessing the mm. ministry since it's growing. And it always stuck with me and offended me to the core because I thought, you know, ministry size is not a fruit of the spirit. And we in the church would 
somehow put that as the paramount fruit of the spirit. If people are coming, God must be there. And yet over time, I know from my own, that own story that the ministry died and failed. And there was a lot of carnage from the people who served that particular leader closely and like very traumatic abusive stories from individuals that came out following that. And then ultimately that ministry died and ended and that church fell Mm. apart. But in initial phases, it looks like everything's bright and shiny and we should, you know, go along with it. And um, of course God's in the midst because there's so many people coming and yet behind the curtain, it doesn't look anything like Jesus. It doesn't look like we're serving the poor. It doesn't like look like we're being kind to our neighbor. You know, like all these just basic truths that Christians try to stand on as like pillars or pillars of their faith can be completely absent. We almost put a blind eye to it because of the size of the ministry. And if if you were to really look into it deeply, you think, okay, well, this is actually just about money. <laughs> you know, like I, I wondered that quite a bit. Like I think that some of the leaders that were involved that I have loved and respected, I think they can't have really, I don't know, protected these people from money. I think in their hearts and their own narratives, they had more ethical story that they told themselves perhaps. Mm. But at the end of the day, if there wasn't money involved and therefore like masses of people, then the behavior would have been a lot different. That's probably the most drastic comparison that came up when I was watching Hillsong with my own experience is just how the modeling uh, just perpetuates this really toxic behavior and celebrity pastor and completely puts a curtain over some really toxic and abusive behavior as well. Yeah, that's super fascinating because you're right. That whole, we have this weird thing, especially in evangelical type Christianity where growth equals blessing. And mm-hmm. it's in that framework of ends justifies the means where as long as there's growth and some sort of expansion of the ministry, then the model of expansion isn't really questioned or nobody looks under the hood to be like, how is this thing? Yeah. And so what you have is even if people get churned out of the system and even they get, if they get ground up and spit out, it's like, as long as that ministry is still growing, somehow it's supposed to be that God's hand is still in it. Mm-hmm. And I think we had touched on in our not in our non-recorded part last time was just that what isn't shown is in coupling with that sort of um, suffering servant uh, call that many Christians are told, you know, you're supposed to lay your life down as a sacrifice. In that suffering servant mentality, what isn't shown is underneath the hood is countless hours of volunteer Mm -hmm. work that is essentially building an empire, right? Similar to capitalist model that requires like for growth to happen at such crazy rates and for such profits to be accumulated at the top, you require either unpaid labor, like unpaid labor at the bottom or like poorly paid labor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have this massive growth system that is essentially focused on uh, products, whether it's music like Hillsong, which started in the 1990s, um, actually like for me, it started in the late 80s, early 90s when we started getting Hillsong music to our church. But like it was going before that. Yeah. But 
the whole empire of product where it's just like you said, there's a celebrity pastor. So there's kind of a branding there. There's probably television channels. There's probably radio. There's probably a whole pile of books. So it's this mm-hmm. industry that is confirming and upholding that kind of mentality and that growth. And it's very insular. So people are going to the sermons, they're going Mm -hmm. to the groups, they're going, they're reading the books of the multiple pastors that go to that church and who are, of course, obviously affirming their own ministries. And so it's this huge behemoth um, system that is growing through all of these byproducts and programs that are run on volunteers or like slave labor, which is required in a sense in order for you to be a good Christian and to be doing the quote unquote right thing because, you know, you're building the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's very difficult, I think, in those kind of systems for the people involved to actually take a step back and go, hold on, should I be volunteering my time to the church? Because of course the answer is yes. Should I be um, looking after the children's ministry? Well, of course the answer is yes. Like the the answers to all those things are always yes in the framework you're given. Mm -hmm. And so like burnout, I think was a big thing that they talked about in the Hillsong where people are putting in full time or overtime, regular work hours as volunteers Mm -hmm separate from their actual real jobs and the family they have going just to keep this behemoth kingdom of God building quote unquote uh, ministry going. Right. Yeah. Another piece that I think is really interesting is when there's like toxic behavior and in that model, the people who have been abused don't easily come forward. Mm. And it's not only that they're the silent suffering servant, but they're also in this model of submission and anything that's perceived as negative against this leader, this divinely called leader who has a growing ministry is seen as divisive. And so you have to be really careful about who you talk to. And there's a risk in that because, you know, historically, perpetually, the church always has been protecting the wrong people. We're we're called in the Bible to protect the poor and to be of service to the poor. But really in practice, what we see is that we protect the powerful and especially when it's at the expense of the entire ministry. And so you could have these really isolated events where someone would go to, you know, a senior pastor or an executive pastor to confidentially share something that took place or exploitation or, you know, bad comments or something like that and it'll be kept quite quietly tight in like a tight circle if anybody knows about it at all and so it takes a long time for these kind of complaints to even make it into general knowledge Mm. because of just the way that the church is run and each one of these individuals is doing the best that they can to serve god right like they're really trying their best to do what they think is right and they don't want to be divisive and they probably have sat at home week in week out wondering if they're the problem mm-hmm. and wondering why if they should just take up their cross and carry it and they can see good things happening in the ministry they're probably also telling themselves well the ministry is growing and people are being saved so i probably shouldn't say anything and things like that and so by the time that they do say something you know it's it's already been a long time coming for for most stories 
And then it's hard for those stories to gain traction because they're kept so isolated. Um, And it's only when people actually start talking to each other that they realize like, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. And then you can have outsiders kind of coupling together and leaving the church together because the, the leadership didn't listen to them or didn't do anything to intervene. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because you have this thing of one, like you said, the you're looking at the growth and you're looking at everything and you're going, well, this ministry is obviously being blessed. And and so you start to turn inward on yourself, like we've talked about in our last two episodes of like you doubt your own experience and your own body and you think maybe I just have a bad attitude or maybe it's just me. Mm-hmm. And then you're also being actively told with Bible verses to not be divisive, you know, and to not like a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so you have these sort of um, higher bids to, to not be a person that would come against what the Holy spirit is perceived to be doing. It's sort of like the, what is that? The unforgivable sin of like quenching the work of the Holy spirit. Yeah. And so that in itself creates this, this, this hole of like a black hole where stories go to die. Right. And then on top of it, the, the sort of the call to, you know, if you have something against your brother, go to them or, mm-hmm. or you get to the court, you know, pull your brother aside and see if you can resolve this before, before you get to the sort of the quote unquote worldly system of resolution, see yeah. if can go to your, you know, your brother or the person you have an issue with and and settle it outside of court. And so you have these verses like this, that creates this really toxic insular system, where wrong things are happening. But because of not only the authority structure, where it's men over women, men and women over children, um, stuff like this, where there's this high, this high up line of hierarchy where you have to go sort of to the leaders of the church or the elders or the deacons with issues, but you're also isolated from the world. And so that was something that stuck out to me was just that there were crimes being committed. And we're not talking about oh, the, yeah. the main guy, but we're talking about like not just Brian Houston, but Brian Houston's dad, I think it was Frank, wasn't it? As a pedophile. Mm -hmm. A serial pedophile, a serial predator. Yeah. And that is seen as something that logically would be dealt with internally. It's not painted as a crime. And I thought that was fascinating. It took me a while to wrap my head around it when I was running and thinking about this. I was like, what is that gap there? And I was just thinking, it's this weird concept that Christians have as being not citizens of this world. And it sort of means that you're, as a Christian, supposed to answer to this higher calling, that the world, in a sense, is kind of below you and separate from you, and you stay separate from it. And your sort of moral stance is higher and better than the world around you. And that's all painted, not in terms of laws, but in terms of sin and forgiveness. And so when you have these things that happen, whether it's rape, pedophilia, fraud, uh, physical abuse, mental abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, all these things that happen in church quite rampantly, it's all painted as sin and categorized as sin and sin is something that god deals with 
And sin is something that God forgives. And that's all, especially in the North American concept, that's all painted as a very personal, intimate relationship with God. So what you do is you sin by committing tax fraud, or you sin by raping a woman, or you sin by being a pedophile. And then you go and you ask for forgiveness from God who forgives you because you ask forgiveness. And then you go to your elders who, given that you're probably the position, you're probably the one in the position of power, they're probably needing you to stay in the position you're in because you're part of this system that is creating product and profit and whatever. So they're then going to turn and say, I forgive you. I forgive you for your tax fraud. I forgive you for your pedophilia. I forgive you for your whatever, right? There, now we're all good. Our sin is forgiven. But it's actually it's actually a criminal issue. <laughs> like it's something yeah. to go to jail for that should be handled by police and courts and you should be punished and removed. And a lot of what times, as we saw in the Catholic Church, as if anyone has seen uh, in the recent um, documentary about the Boy Scouts, if you look at Protestant churches like the Southern Baptist Convention and how many abusers they just shifted around everywhere, there are constant things that are actually criminal acts going on that is just all secretly being dealt with internally one to keep that system afloat but two because it's almost like it's removed from reality it's like well god forgives and and it's just a sin that i have and and i need to lay it at the cross and god will help me like we always joke about like oh my issues with like attacking and raping women well I gave that to Betty. Betty's going to handle it. <laughs> you know, it's I like, laid it at the foot of Betty's cross and yeah, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. And Betty, it's fine if you want to ask Betty for help, but like you might also need therapy and some time in jail and a hefty fine yeah. and to pay well, for it. I think that that's interesting. We talked about that even in the Job issue of like, we shouldn't be more ethical than God and we shouldn't be more ethical than like the world shouldn't be more ethical than the church. Mm-hmm. And so if the church is standing on like their high moral ground, like they have a better moral compass and therefore they should be able to, you know, forgive and deal with these kind of faux pas internally. Well, then they should have a higher standard than the world. And if the world's saying that pedophilia is a major crime, then you would think that the church would do it even (laughs) like to a higher degree. And that's, that's not obviously what we saw. And I, I guess I was in the documentary one of the things that just was so disgusting to me was I think it was in the final episode where they talk about how Fred's life or ministry was coming to an end and he had been removed from like active ministry after the board had found out about all his pedophilia Mm -hmm. activity activities but they still honored him in front of the entire church Mm -hmm. and I just like it just killed my soul, you know, like this person has been a serial predator and yeah, he started churches, you know, quote unquote. And a lot of the people in those congregations didn't know what was behind the scenes, obviously, but why, why would you promote somebody with such a bad character? Like, that's what I just couldn't understand. Like, they're still just kind of making sure that the curtains over everybody's eyes or something. I don't know, but like, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to bring attention to him and be like, this is a man of God. And we're so grateful for him. Like, oh, yeah. 
I think it is like you said, like if the standards are higher outside of the church, the reality is, is like Christians should be willing to let the whole system burn if it needs to be started again, you know, like they should Mm -hmm. be willing to, if they actually are committed to some external quote unquote godly standards, then they should be willing to let ministries collapse. They should be willing to let leaders fall and pay for the price. They should Mm -hmm. be willing to strip it right down to the bare bones if necessary. And the reality is, is they're not like a lot of people, like you said in that last episode where they're honoring Fred or Frank or whatever his name is, the dad of Brian. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I think it's maybe Frank. Did I call him Fred? Frank. (laughs) I couldn't remember. (laughs) Whatever that guy is. We don't like him. (laughs) One of the F words, Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but they were willing to honor him. And so many people stayed like so many people sat in church and quote unquote forgave him. And well, I mean, it wasn't really theirs to forgive. It was the no. probably the indigenous boys in the Maori and communities he had gone to and other yeah. things elsewhere. He had traveled for quote unquote ministry um, that he had sexually assaulted and abused that will never have justice for that. Um, so it wasn't theirs for, to forgive, but they all sat there and they all continued to go to church. And I think that that says something really strong about how often we stick with communities simply because of sunk costs and simply because it's the community we've built our life on, not because it's necessarily the best and not because it's necessarily just and not because it's necessarily healthy, you know? Yeah, I think that there's even research on this that like when we look at community and groups just from an evolutionary perspective that it's too dangerous for us to uh, leave the community that we know, mm-hmm. even like if there's, alone, yeah. and so it's like, you feel more comfortable by going with the the familiar territory. And it doesn't mean that it's good. It just means that that's your best option for right now. Right. And totally. um, yeah. And so like on some level, it's understandable. It just sucks that that's the way it is when it's the church, you know, we have these high expectations for the church to be the light on the hill and the good news. And we don't think of it as, we don't want to think of it as the author of pain and the leaders uh, behind it being, you know, the abusers. We want to think of them as, you know, our saving grace, our sanctuary, our safe place. And it can be really disturbing when you bring the curtain back and you see something very different. And I think that's why the Hillsong documentary was really important because there are people who haven't worked in ministry and haven't seen Um, some of the inner workings that take place. And so when I watch it as somebody who worked in ministry for 10 years, everything was familiar. Mm -hmm. Everything was like, yep, that's exactly how it is. Nothing felt out of place. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like they were being dramatic at all. I didn't think that they were like trying to make a show out of it for the sake of a documentary. It was like just very standard, exactly how it is. Uh, One of the other things that stood out to me was... um, I can't remember the girl's name, but she was trying to get into ministry and like went to the same Bible college. And the closest she could get to working in ministry was basically volunteering on like a ton of hours um, at Hillsong, but being the nanny for 
a pastor's wife and that's as close as she could get. And I was like, wow, that's exactly how it is. All the women, they can be totally educated and they can be the ones who are actually running the show, but they have the title of admin or ministry assistant and they get paid $20,000 a year and don't have any safety nets if they were to get fired or laid off because of the way the nonprofit is in the States. And, you know, the pastors get all the glory and all of the title and all of the money. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the best that the women can do is say like, oh, I'm a pastor's wife. And so I get to use the mic every once in a while, or I didn't have the privilege to marry a pastor. So I get to nanny for a pastor and run the children's ministry sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. And it's just like, well, we, we still haven't gotten very far with the women's issue in the church. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like painted as progressive in, in terms of church circles, but in comparison to, I think they had said at the beginning of, I think the first episode, it was like, well, take them out of any sort of like external circle and they're not progressive at all to anywhere else. And I think for me, that's always the fascinating thing is that on the one hand, you have this book. So you have the Bible and you have like, obviously we've discussed in, in length about how Christians go at the Bible in different ways and pluck out different mm -hmm. verses, the same way that you and I have of what mm -hmm. we think God is actually like versus one version in like one story in the Bible versus another story, which are contrasting. Right. And so it's mm -hmm. like, I'll pick some people see an authoritarian God. Some people see the, the suffering servant God of like reaching out to the poor and the whatever, mm -hmm. and then see the end times God who's like laying waste to everyone out of justice and, and purity and, you know, and all of that yeah. is in there. And so you have this book and this church that is pulling certain things out of this book. And I think the interesting thing is that you have the claim, like you said, on this higher standard and on this righteous calling and whatever. And you have all of these people spending all of this time and all of this effort out of effort to be good people and to be good Christians and they're loving God and they're serving God. And I would say even the leaders themselves mm -hmm. within that system, people, it's not just like, Oh, these are some bad leaders who are bad dudes. Like, mm -hmm. no, I think it, it's part of that messaging as part of that, system, yeah. part of that version of the gospel that you have all these hours plugged in and they still can't get it right. And it's sort of like, like, what was it? I think Carl and had been doing like seven or eight sermons a day. Mm -hmm. And you're like, how do you do eight sermons a day? How do you pray, be part of ministries? You have a family, you're involved in the marketing, you're doing videos, you're yeah. You've got the elders around you all the time. You know, you've got deacons, board members weighing in you're all praying over every like meal you have together. You're praying for the vision of the church. Like you are literally at peak living and breathing this ministry. And yet you crash and burn and fail. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like, how is the average person supposed to be able to be a Christian? Like how is the <laughs> person that isn't living and breathing in church and praying over words of wisdom and surrounding themselves with other church members every single hour of every single day. How are they supposed to be a good Christian when even when at the peak 
top of Christian living, surrounded by supposedly the most Christian people of all time, God still doesn't transform you. He still doesn't save your ministry. He still doesn't keep your feet from snares. He still doesn't prevent the collapse of you and and consequently the collapse and and destruction of piles of followers that have followed you it's like really like either something severely wrong with how we think god works or like there's your god's not very powerful you know what i mean yeah well and i think that this this kind of mega church model is a little bit unique like not all churches obviously in north america are this extreme but it it's still kind of um like i think that in a lot of circles people are okay with the average ordinary person just loving god with their ordinary life and giving him what they have you know and like praying in the morning reading their bible being good parents being a a good worker because you work under christ and you know spending time with your family and being good to your neighbor i think there are a lot of people who are okay with that but in I, I hear what you're saying though, like in these models where you're you're the leader and you're showing like this pristine way of being like an epic Christian <laughs> yeah. and you can't you can't do it. Like that that mode does not actually lead to transformation. I don't think that it has anything to actually do with any portion of God of the Bible. Like t- take any version of God that you find in the Bible and I don't know which one would align with like a celebrity pastor exploiting people. Like I don't I don't see how any of that aligns. Um no matter which one you choose. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's just me. It's a good no, it's a good point on the model because like what you and I talked about um when we had been phoning each other after last week was that kind of capitalist model that requires mm-hmm. endless expansion. And yeah. so the the version that you are taking out of the Bible of God has to support that kind of expansionist dominionist sort of um vision and it has to be everything it has to be all consuming and it has to be continually like growing right perpetual sounds like uh, colonization and slavery all wrapped into one yeah so they're all interlinked (laughs) so we just need a bunch of slaves and we need to colonize everything and we need to dominate everything and then we need to take all the resources (laughs) and that's the church (laughs) at the top the dude bros are still running everything um and then we will use women's unpaid labor as well yeah but yeah like so i think you're right in that sense that um, whatever version of God is pulled out for them in those models that supports that model and supports that kind of understanding of God, I guess it's it's obviously doomed to fail in the same way that our entire environment is collapsing around us because of the way expansionist capitalism refuses to slow down and refuses to actually do things well or do things carefully and do things slowly. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. treat people well and treat people fair and respect boundaries. So because the model is essentially inherently flawed, it's impossible to to survive it, you know, when you're caught in it. Yeah. Whether you're a volunteer or the celebrity pastor, it's just it's going to churn you up and spit you out. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of the the documentary and even what we're talking about right now is reminding me that the church that I I used to serve at and worked at for so many years they had their very last Sunday like two or three Sundays ago and 
like their legacy died and the church has been bought up by another like local mega church who's taking it over because the, the, the leadership basically just killed it. But it's been really interesting for me to consider like what it took for that ministry to fail mm -hmm. because it, you know, we were on 75 acres. We had schools from preschool through accredited college. We had, you know, like huge facilities. We had thousands of people. Like I think when I was working there, the peak that we had was maybe 5,000 a week. And then by the time I left, I think we were down to maybe 2,000 a week. And then they got down to like 300 or 200 people going to just this humongous facility. You know, you, you just can't sustain something that large with only a couple people tithing, right? Yeah. And pay everyone livable wages. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and like people are getting fired and laid off because they just simply don't have the funds to, you know, run the building or pay the people. And yet I'm sure that the senior pastor still took home a very sizable income, didn't take a pay cut, continued to have his car supplied by the church, you know, things like this. And he's not driving a Honda Civic. He's probably driving like an Audi or a BMW or whatever else, Lexus. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found really interesting when I was considering it was it took decades, like decades of this poor leadership to really run its course before the thing collapsed. Yeah. And I can tell you at least by 2007, no, probably 2006, I knew that the place was doomed and was not doing well and saw so many flaws in leadership. And I wasn't, I didn't need to be an executive pastor to see that and understand that, mm -hmm. you know, like I was a student in Bible college there and could see huge red flags. And yet, yeah. And then it took from, I mean, I'm sure it started before I even noticed it when I arrived there, but obviously it lasted just until 2023. So yeah, it just, it can take a long, long, long time for some of these really poor models to implode on themselves. And in the meantime, there's a lot of hurt, hurt people who are believing the best. Really good. Really good points. Did you have any other thoughts on what you were just saying? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just was, it was just interesting to me, like how, how long it, it took for the, my church, my current church or my old church to implode. And then I wondered with Hillsong, you know, obviously they're imploding right now and they're going through a bunch of court cases and all that kind of stuff. But by the documentary, we know that a lot of these things stem back to Frank or Fred, whatever that F word is. <laughs> and, and before, you know, and I'm sure that all of the people who, uh, who are their carnage in that path are like, finally, you know, finally getting the recognition that it hasn't been all roses and butterflies, even though there are great, there's always going to be those great stories in the midst of the chaos, just because humans have the capacity to be wonderful human beings to each other, despite the church, you know, and too often we uh, give glory to like the church or to the leader for somebody else's good deed. And it has nothing to do with them. Yeah, that's a good point too. I think the collapse thing is interesting. And going back to our point of that people, because of sunk costs and stuff, people will kind of, or, or even undermining themselves, like undermining their own experiences and their own um, red flags, you know, they will continue on in a community and continue on limping for mm -hmm. quite some time supporting that structure. Yeah. Or, finally it implodes from the top and then they're like oh thank god like now <laughs> you know now, now yeah 
And now there's actually like, it wasn't just in my head. I, mm-hmm. I was gaslighting myself, but it was actually real that something wasn't right here and that something wasn't good. Um, but I, I do think it's fascinating too, because I always maybe not struggle because I don't really struggle with it anymore. But when I was in the midst of really deconstructing, I was always struggling with finding that line of like, well, how are all these people, they're drawn to something that they attribute to being God, right? So the leaders, whoever starts these structures, they're they're drawn to a certain kind of gospel, they're drawn to a certain kind of structure, they're drawn to a certain kind of system and way of interacting in communities. And so are the people that go. So like these mega churches are called mega churches because they actually appeal to a whole pile of people who go and feel their life has some purpose and meaning and transformation while in those large structures, even though when you peek under the hood or behind the scenes, it's often abusive or there's things being Mm -hmm. hidden and going on. And so it's a very weird one to think, okay, so pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You've got the wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Who's just pulling strings and doing whatever, but everybody at the front is somehow having this quote unquote God experience or experience with whatever. And it's like, how is that not, not as if God couldn't do it. I just mean, how is it possible that God would allow for people to be in a circumstance or allow or got quote unquote guide people or, or pull them into a system that is going to implode because we've seen it on repeat Mm -hmm. that these kind of structures implode and loads of people are injured. People are abused. Wives are often cheated on, you know, children Mm -hmm. are often um, prey to, to certain predators. And it's like, so we have to ask, like, is it actually God pulling people into these structures or is it just that we are so craving community and these structures Mm -hmm. are lovely in that they have, coffee and have sometimes very beautiful messages and the music is very inviting and very uh, emotional. And you have that kind of concept of collective effervescence where we Mm -hmm. humans feed off each other's energy. It's like when we're around humans, whether it's in a Beatles concert back in the day or, you know, Swifties or whatever, you kind of feed off of the experience that people are having collectively and whereas in like a Taylor Swift concert, it's seen as just a good concert, but people in church would attribute that sort of feeling and that emotion to God and being attracted to that. We never really stop to think, is it actually God working based off this faulty structure or is it just the fact that we're all together looking for community and uh gathering around the same ideas and the same concepts and sharing all of that. And because for me that if we go back to like our vision of God, or it's not compatible for me that God would for the sake of growth of a ministry that he would put people in harm's way or in a bad collapsible ministry when he knows the outcome already um, under toxic leadership and poor governing policies and and bad hierarchies that he would be willing yeah. to pull people into that just for the sake of growth or for the sake that they could have some kind of an experience with him only in that situation when there are plenty like you said plenty of other small churches that are more yeah. simple and more and more loving and more and more calm 
So for me, the whole like discernment thing is just like, I'm like, wow, there's not much discernment there from the top down as they're building these infrastructures. They say they're being guided by God. They say they're being discerning. They say they're this and that, but there's actually almost no discernment there. My church, for example, was fully buying into the Hillsong's music in Mm the and early 90s and this is when frank or fred or whatever his name was was running around pedophiling kids and this was product coming out of this structure that pastors um no no blame to them but were mm-hmm. absorbing readily absorbing yeah. his, absorbing the books absorbing the um, messages and the songs and perpetuating them and nobody had any discernment that none of this might have been a, a good setup or that this might have been not the way to go with your church or not the thing to emulate. And so it's like, so does God's discernment only kick in when you know you actually have all the data? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it's like, God, <laughs> yeah. you know, I thought he's supposed to be spiritually, supernaturally guiding you. And you're like, but actually, no, like all these churches were just happily not only absorbing the products of Hillsong, but Mm. also trying to emulate its kind of growth structure. And so you're like, how much discernment from God do you actually have then? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about is that they are viewing the growth as God's blessing, Mm -hmm. right? And so then they're looking to their mentors who have grown their ministry, you know, through this model and they're just going to do it. And then of course that they don't have spiritual discernment because that's never been (laughs) for one, it hasn't been modeled to them or mentored in them, but maybe it's just not even possible. Right. Yeah. But Uh, you're supposed to be getting your discernment from God. He's supposed to be giving you the spirit of discernment. And so you've got these leaders that God is supposedly putting into place to run these massive ministries And they and their congregations aren't being given the spirit of discernment to run these massive ministries. But you're saying that the key issue there is in the actual belief in the first place that growth itself is. I think that that's the pillar. Yeah, I think that if really what the value was, like if the metric for success was, are we feeding the poor? Are we helping our neighbor? Do we have love abounding in this place? If that was the metric, it would look a lot different, yeah, right? But the metric fun. isn't that. The metric is, is our ministry growing? How We're not thriving unless we're bringing in more money and more, and we're seeing more souls saved for Christ. And they would say it in that way, right? Like they would say, we need to be saving souls for Christ. And that would in turn mean that there are more bodies in the pews and more payers of the church. So it, it all kind of gets convoluted, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the model of growth. Yeah. So where it's almost like saying the basic belief itself that growth is any kind of indicator for spirituality or godliness or anything like that in itself is um, flawed. Well, I think that like, we have those scriptures of, um, or is that even a scripture? Or if it's just maybe a cliche in the church that we've taken up, but you know, we always talk about like how stagnation is is like deadly, right? Like if you're not growing, you're dying, kind of thing in the church. But the the fruit of the spirit is you know love, gentleness, patience, kindness, things like that. And so if that was our met- metric for success, and the model was built on that, 
and not money and not growth, I think that we would be saving a lot of um, time on like abuse and churches dying and things like that. Yes. It's not a very sustainable way, though. You still need to pay for your building somehow. And I guess totally. you can't pay for your building very well if you're just trying to be kind to people. Or maybe actually, we should try that. I think a lot of people would be down to actually donate to a great cause that actually loves people and takes care of their neighbor and helps the poor. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, we actually maybe come to a real um, key point of a lot of North American evangelicalism currently, but also sort of the history of colonial Protestantism. And that's the fact that if you question this concept and that kind of view that America or Canada or quote unquote, the West is blessed because of the wealth, because of the goods, because of the whatever, because of the economic prosperity, which has been the American motto for a very long time, then you throw doubt on the validity of the entire structure, because the entire structure is built on these ideas um, being true, these ideas of growth and blessing and expansionism. And because you've built your entire dominion on that, you can't actually afford to take a hard dive into those values and into those structures because it would essentially undermine your entire empire. And I think that that comes down to the uncomfortable truth that the church and the state and the wealth machine that capitalism has allowed for on the backs of slaves, if you if you actually question that model where you take a hard look at how the church and the state have been very much intertwined and very much reliant upon each other and very much intermingled in terms of their ideas. And mm -hmm. you say, hold on, say as an American megachurch, you say, hold on, maybe growth doesn't mean blessing. Maybe expansionism doesn't mean prosperity and wealth and favor from God. Maybe actually all of these things are just done on the backs of misconduct and poor labor bullying. and bullying and yeah. abuse and hierarchy. And so what we actually don't not just have to show for in our church growth, but in our country's growth, everything around us and all the things that I believed about my country's wealth and prosperity and blessing and growth, maybe it's all bullshit. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe we've been really, really wrong, not only about how we perceive God to be moving and how God to pick winners and, you know, sort of favor your team or your army or your company or your acquisitions or your whatever. And maybe we've been really wrong about that. And we need to rethink that. And maybe actually mm -hmm. God isn't there and he isn't present in any of it. He's not in the militarism. He's not in the expansionism. He's not in colonialism. He's not in growth. He's not in colonization. And oh, geez, the God of America or the God of North America or the Protestant God of the West that expanded over this entire globe and terrorized people. Maybe that God is totally wrong. Yeah. If you, if you actually put it in that, like how could that God be right? Like in the framing that you've given, like I think it's very accurate and a great point. And how could that be? How could that be godly? How could that be right? 
Yeah. And because the West in general, because of its history and North America in general and America specifically, because they believe those things about Mm -hmm. why the West is great. And as Trump said, other countries are quote unquote shithole countries. The reason the church is so easily ready to accept those concepts of growth and celebrity pastors and whatever is because it's baked into the very concepts we have as North yeah. American Christians about ourselves and how we got here and how mm-hmm. privileged we are in the world because of God's favor. And so it just feels true. It feels true because yeah. that's already in our narrative. And so then those kind of models of church feel true, where models of humility and models of non-growth and models of consent and models of Mm. hierarchy and models of inclusion don't feel natural to us because the model that our countries were built on was the opposite of those things. Yeah. Well, and I do want to make the point too, that I think that if you were to change the metric and change the model and actually have things based on like love and humility and consent and human rights and things, I do think that it would grow. And I don't think that growth is maybe the the enemy or anything. I think that it could be a natural byproduct of a really healthy system, Yes, but growth within the framework of bullying and taking and military and domination stuff obviously ends up being an outcome you know that's intertwined with abuse and and therefore the growth is is an enemy in that in that context and it comes to from the concept that the world outside of the church doesn't have morals and it's not godly and it's not this and it's not kind and you can't without god you can't love properly without god you can't be moral Mm. without so there is a natural sort of colonial aspect to that where when you're trying to frame things in a moral light, your natural inclination in that framing is to then, quote unquote, civilize the uncivilized and make things that are immoral, make them moral. You know what I mean? Because when you're painting humanity in that contrast of who's in the church, uh, has it together and has God and has discernment and is moral and is just and everything outside is sort of corrupt and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm there becomes this great commission to then go out into the world and transform everybody to look like you. And Mm -hmm. without actually realizing that that in itself, one, not recognizing that that's obviously not true, but also not recognizing that that commission in itself for you to go out and actively try to make people like you without learning the basics and without learning the facts and actually having real conversations and actually seeing what's going on outside in the world that actually makes you crappy (laughs) just a little bit yeah it just nullifies your claims to sort of moral superiority but Mm -hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head just with a thing of like that growth obsession and like you said not we're not talking about sustainable growth like like companies can't sustainably grow they can be equitable they can be Mm -hmm. equal they can pay their workers fairly you know all the like there is such a thing as um limited and sustainable growth yeah that kind of concept of like just unbridled expansionism where just the whole world is just gonna like come to your church it's definitely unsustainable (laughs) well yeah and and super dangerous (laughs) 
to yeah. like to, you know like let's just annihilate all these people's belief systems and thought processes and family histories and cultures and yeah and everyone should conform to our idea because we must be right like i can't i can't imagine how prideful you would have to be to really believe that like and i guess some of it is naive like we've both been in those places where we did believe those things um oh. 100%. You know, so, so yeah, it, some of it is just blind belief and hoping the best and thinking that you're doing something loving and right and you're on God's side. And then it's, it's yeah. fun on the outside, isn't it? Because you, you're right. You and I both totally believed. Well, I think one, when we were in those systems, we believed that there was only one version of Christianity, right? Like that it was just Christian. Mm-hmm. And then you start to realize as you deconstruct that, you know, you actually, like we had talked about the Trump era and stuff, that you realized you didn't really believe the same things as people in your own family. You didn't really believe the same oh, yeah. in your own church. You know, there that yeah. that we actually have very different versions of God. And yeah. then you and and me discussing issues, we also realized that we had very different takeaways from God as well. So you start to realize, mm-hmm. as um Andre Gagne had said, like there's a million Christianities. And so it's sort of funny to come out of it because when we were in it, we a hundred percent thought that there was like one faith, you know, that was the best thing for the world. And now you start to see all these really important things that come with difference and these really important things that come with having different versions and different takes on things, because without it, there's no challenge and there's no thought and there's no Mm -hmm. personal growth. Yeah, or accountability even, right? Yeah. Oh, like that's a horrifying thought to think of a church that would be so dominant that it would just go out and just wipe out everything that stood in its path because the distinction and the difference between us as humans and our own life experiences are so valuable to keep Mm -hmm. that kind of rampant egotism in check, right? Yeah, yeah. We need like that diverse ecosystem to keep things healthy. I was thinking about that in contrast to just how church in general provides that ritual for people to come together and have a shared experience. And that shared experience ends up giving them like a common language and you can end up having that facade of having one faith. And in a lot of ways, you probably have a lot of similarities through going going to the same church and um, having those shared experiences and always having the same ritual and whatnot. But within all of that, like you were saying, there's going to be some diversity in the takeaways and what you're prioritizing and what's bothering you, what's not bothering you, things like that. And yet there's such power in that shared experience, that shared language, that ritual that brings all these people together over and over again that really ends up being the backbone of community and it could be a really good thing it could be a really powerful and healthy tool like we know in health sciences anyway that you live longer when you have a healthy community so i think that there's a lot that we could take away from that if we were to ever apply that to something better and healthier to say okay well community is great having ritual with um a consistent group of people can be a good thing. Having shared experiences together can be great. Having common language around some of these things can be beneficial. The problem ends up being when there's diversity or divergence, how do you handle that? Like, can we still respect one another? Can we still love one another? Can we still accept that we have intrinsic value and worth as human beings and just be like, oh, wow, yeah, I didn't take it like that. 
and then like move on like your identity isn't tied to it and that it's not like an apocalyptic end if somebody doesn't believe in just the exact same god that you do mm-hmm. um you know what i mean Perfectly, yes. The thing being just able to know you can discuss things because there's enough acceptance and mutual respect there that you can open up about differences, right? So knowing that there's enough of a like a broadness to the community that you're in, that if you were to voice something that you didn't take, you know, a scripture or a whatever, a certain way, or you didn't see God that way, that that wouldn't be like you said, an identity threatening thing where people like get their Bible zone starts quoting <laughs> correcting you. you and like ranting or, you know, that it would just yeah. be like, oh, actually, I never really thought of it that way. And maybe I don't have all the details. And maybe I'll go and think about that or, you know, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you're right, maybe I should reconsider. <laughs> exactly. And that's just, it's not the case. And I think you and I are both in the position that we're in because it wasn't the case for us. You know, there was a very certain way that people respond to difference and and respond Mm -hmm. to theology that doesn't quite fit the norm, right? Yeah, there wasn't flexibility. You couldn't, you couldn't deviate. (laughs) Yeah. and, And that makes it hard then, you know, as our podcast has outlined, but it makes it hard when you go through very extreme things in life, but also just the basic complexity of life when there's all these different things that you can experience. And there's all these different ways that your own personality deals with those things. There's Mm -hmm. all these different humans in your life. And every single person has those spheres that are totally different. And so you're going to walk away with a whole pile of different things to think about. Like every human is going to have all these different things to think about. And this demand that there be one specific answer or that God only looks a certain way or that God's definitely a he, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> all these things that we that yeah. feel like communities just get obsessed over. Um, and really what it does is it just, yeah, it stops being then a community that is bringing you health. Like you said, yeah. health that is good for humans where we need that reaffirming, common shared liturgy in a sense, like those rituals and the meeting Mm -hmm. up and the commitment to each other. And it just undermines all that because it's not a community that can be open to, to something different or to new ideas. I think at some point in all of our lives, life happens to us. And I think those are opportunities where our faith gets shaken (laughs) and you either completely cling to your community as your anchor or you start seeing the cracks like we've talked about before and your community can be a really heal like a part of like a healing agent in those times when when they can be flexible and when they can sit beside you in some of those wanderings and be like yeah I didn't think about it like that before and maybe you do weather the storm with some sort of hybrid model of what you once believed versus what you're now believing with your community intact but I think for the most part it seems like I've only ever witnessed like the binary effect of either people really clinging to the prescriptive way that's been um, put before them and sticking with the community or they completely have to eventually just kind of throw it out and walk away and find find a new place in life 
And I, I hope that we're changing that a little bit, like in this era of deconstruction and, and whatnot. I hope that there's some room for even the people within the church to take notice and say like, hmm, we're not handling this well, and maybe we should just be a bit more flexible. <laughs> I don't know if that's ever possible, but um, we all come with the opportunities for life to throw us these curveballs that we just can't navigate with a very rigid and prescriptive text and way of living. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but the Eckhart thing of just, you know, you're born into this world as a baby and the baby doesn't have language. You know, you don't have Mm -hmm. a job. You don't have a sexuality uh, identified yet. You don't have your style or, or anything yet. And yet nobody would say, well, that isn't you. You know, they would still say that was you, you as a baby. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet as we go in life, we get all these like little things like hermit crabs. We're kind of like adding stuff to our outer self, like a job, partners, wealth, hobbies, interests, politics, you know, you name it. And you start confusing those things as yourself. Mm -hmm. So when people then threaten some of those things, or you're being asked to remove some of those shells or some of those layers, it feels like this attack on your identity, but your identity was like your identity, your, your worth and your value and your essence as a person was you as a baby before any of that stuff was attached to you before you had culture, you know, family, language, identity, whatever. And so I think that's how we get to as people. It's like, you get so, you think, at least I did as a Christian, you think that your quote unquote identity is in Christ, but it's actually in a very specific version of things. And then when life comes and shakes that stuff, you either like latch onto that even more because it feels like you're going to die. Like it's some affront to something that you fused to the very bones of yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not you. Like it's actually, and it's, and I would say even whatever we think about God, it's not God either. Those are things we fuse all the time to the, to the outside of stuff that almost becomes indiscernible from, from ourselves or even from God or whatever. And it's like a threat and our and we react to it like a threat and we're just like you can't take that belief system away from me or you can't take this away from me or this status or this job or this whatever and the reality is is all of it can go and you're still mm-hmm. you it was actually really great because my dad gave an amazing analogy he was like it's like a ducati uh motorcycle he's like you can get ducatis and ducatis are always ducatis because they can get all these like parts that you can attach to the outside. And I was like, oh my God, my dad's blowing my mind. You know, (laughs) he's like all these colored parts and you can switch them on and off. But he's like, the actual Ducati will always be stamped as a Ducati. And I was like, dang, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Like you get it. (laughs) Yeah. And it was so like, that's exactly accurate. You know, your value is regardless, but we have all these little like bells and whistles that we attach to ourselves that we think are part of being that thing, that Ducati, but the reality is it, mm-hmm. that those are just interchangeable and yeah. and our actual essence is what it is. Um, and maybe that's for God too. Maybe God is what God is, but we have all of these plastic interchangeable parts that we keep trying to like stick on Attach. and a lot of them aren't right. And probably the, the looser we hold those things for ourselves and for God, probably the more more harmonious society would be in some ways, right? Because mm-hmm. we wouldn't yeah. be afraid of interaction and we wouldn't be afraid of questions and we wouldn't be afraid of change and we wouldn't be afraid of being vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a, I feel like that's a perfect way to sum up a lot of what we've talked about. Because it's like, you know, when churches die and and when things change, like you're you can still be you if you leave that church and you can still be you if you change the way you think about a scripture and you can still be you when you don't even recognize your life anymore, right? Like your value is still there, your uniqueness is still intact. It can just feel very uncomfortable. Well, here's a question to go out on. We have five minutes left because neither of us have bothered to afford to upgrade to Zoom Pro. (laughs) On this end of things, do you still feel like the same you that you were before in in a sense of like, do you feel like you lost you or do you feel like you're more you? I feel like I'm a different you. Interesting. Yeah, um, I definitely felt threatened and I didn't feel safe to even think the, th- the thoughts I was thinking or feeling the things that I was feeling. And it took me a long time to disentangle a lot of that because I was always trying to realign myself to kind of the prescribed way, mm-hmm. um, even if things didn't feel right. Uh, so I definitely felt the threat and, and whatnot and it took me a long time to navigate that and even get to a place where I could, you know, tiptoe away, you know, slowly tiptoe away and try things out on the other side. But when it comes to feeling like me, I feel like I've, I'm just a completely different person. Like, I feel like I've been a different person multiple different times in my life, like who I was as a teenager versus who I was in my twenties and married to one person versus who I am today. Like in all of those stages, I felt like I was fully me, you know? Yeah. And if anything, like I grieve the loss of what I felt as a Christian because there comes a certain peace in life when you don't know all of the tragedies, I guess, and abuses. And and like I miss having that kind of, I felt like it was like a solid foundation in my life. Things can be broken and never be put back again. I can never get that kind of innocence back in my life. And I guess that's what we call maturity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in a weird way, I don't know if I'll ever be as happy as I was when I was that version of a Christian where yeah, I didn't have to think about anything. Everything was already black and white. I had answers for why the world was here. Like It was just so simple and so boxed into very clean, neat answers about reality. And I think there was a great happiness that I had in not having to muck about in that, right? Oh, absolutely. But would I trade that for what I have now and the deep sort of rich contentedness I have about what life can be and what the mixture is of reality and what it means for various people on this earth. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I feel like the strength that I have in myself and the quality of friendships and the the Mm -hmm. conversation and the heartbreak and the the emotions I'm allowed to have and the the richness of it far surpasses any richness that I had. Mm -hmm. I was blissfully sort of unaware and, and and happy in being unaware, but now I'm actually content uh, in the dirt and in the muck of it. And I feel like that I am very happy for. Great way to end it. I agree. There's a richness to life and I wouldn't give that up. So cheers to that, I guess, right? Cheers to that. Yeah. Um, all right, everyone. Uh, then that's it for tonight. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye.